This episode of the Case for Safety podcast is sponsored by ClickSafety. Welcome to the Case for Safety podcast, our conversations with safety experts aim to share ideas and insights you can use to help your organization benefit from efforts to improve worker safety and health. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. According to the CDC, suicide was responsible for more than 48,000 deaths in the U.S. in 2018, resulting in about one death every 11 minutes. A study from the Bureau of Labor Statistics found that from 2007 to 2018, 2,800 suicides occurred in the workplace. These statistics are heartbreaking, but there is hope, and there are steps you can take to make a difference in your workplace. Joining us today to talk about some of those steps and how you can foster a more supportive work environment is Maggie Mortali. Maggie is a Senior Program Director at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. She established and now leads a department dedicated to AFSP's workplace program initiatives, including the groundbreaking Interactive Screening Program. She has over a decade of experience in suicide prevention, advancing knowledge of effective programs and practices to support comprehensive suicide prevention across a variety of settings. She is also responsible for development and implementation for AFSP's workplace program initiatives, cultivating workplace partnerships with diverse groups such as institutes of higher education, large public and private sector employers, and public safety. And with that, uh, I would like to uh, bring on Maggie. Maggie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Scott. It's, a, it's really a pleasure to be here. Honored to have you. So uh, as I mentioned at the top, this is an issue that affects so many people and, and families all around the country, both in and out of the workplace. And there are the, the stressors that people are dealing with under normal circumstances, which is you know amplified even more with, with the ongoing pandemic. You're right. And, and what you, you know, you're really, your introduction really speaks to um, the, you know, the scope of, of suicide as a public health problem. And um, certainly there are, you know, complexities to suicide, which we'll certainly get into today. But, um, you know, despite its complexity, it is uh, and can be prevented. And, and we know that, that the impact that that has is on families and, and communities, and including the workplace. Absolutely. Now, that's, that's a good segue. So talking about the, the workplace specifically, in your, your writing and, and the work you do, you talk a lot about culture. So what role does the workplace culture play in the factors that can lead to suicide? Sure. And, and this is such a, it's a great question. And it's really, um, I think, an emerging area. Um, when we we talk about um, the impact that suicide has, 80% um, of, of folks that die by suicide are of working age population, 18 to 64 years of age, as it's defined. And so the, the workplace itself is, is really a, um, a setting for suicide prevention and you know, intervention and crises response. And it's really uh, essential to saving lives. And so 
Um, when we talk about you know risk factors that can lead to suicide, um, there's no one or re, you know research has really shown that there's no one cause for suicide. Um, there's there's often um, you know risk factors, uh, health factors, historical factors, environmental factors. These are really kind of characteristics or um, probably a better word for this would be conditions that that can converge at different times in a person's life and increase their risk for suicidal behavior. And workplace culture really falls under the, uh, the category of environmental factors. Um, environmental factors are really, when we talk about suicide, refer to the circumstances of a person's life. And because uh, the work setting and therefore the culture of that setting is, is itself an environmental factor. And so some, you know, kind of workplace setting examples that serve as an environmental risk factor, um, this could include a prolonged job strain, also job insecurity that's certainly something that you know we're we're facing now as a as a as a, you know covid and the kind of global health problem that we're we're facing here um, both job strain and job insecurity are considered environmental uh, risk factors for suicide and the kind of intersection of culture here is that workplace culture uh, particularly that can create um, this sort of prolonged work demands um, or, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a culture that um, is, is quite demanding of its employees. And particularly when those, um, those demands are in conflict with family responsibilities or make family responsibilities more difficult or even the opposite, right? When family demands uh, make the work more challenging, these factors can often heighten job dissatisfaction and um, and and contribute to job stress and and even burnout uh, in employees. And so, when we, you know, when we talk about environmental factors, um, workplace culture really plays a role in factors that can lead to suicide, but also when we improve workplace culture, the workplace itself can actually serve as a protective factor. And, um, and that speaks to, you know, implementing suicide prevention strategies in the workplace, but also just having, you know, having a job can serve as a protective factor. Um, having a supportive workplace, feeling connected to your work, you know, that can serve as protective factors uh, against suicide. I'm uh, very glad you mentioned that and the positive role the workplace can have in addressing these type of issues. And we're going to get into that a little later. But when you talk about you know, there can be a lot of different different factors that can that can lead to suicide. A lot of different things that b- people are dealing with. So, in in a workplace setting, what are some signs and symptoms that people can look for? in those who, who may be struggling personally or professionally or, and who may even be contemplating suicide? That's such a great um, 
question too, and I and it you know really kind of pairs well with with suicide risk factors and and what we talked about in terms of the workplace culture and um, some of how risk factors really um, endure over a longer period of time. Signs and symptoms, like su- really what we refer to as observable, kind of, as suicide warning signs, these are observable signs that can, that really can signal suicidal risk in the near future. And there are, um, we kind of group suicide warning signs, just like we group risk factors into three main categories. We group warning signs into three main categories as well. And this is really because we want them to be you know, easy to remember. And so that um, when we're educating people about warning signs or when we know the warning signs, we can look for those in ourselves and others. And so in the workplace, um, and, and again, more broadly even, suicide warning signs um, fall into a kind of talk, behavior and mood. Talk is really about the what people are saying. So um, many people who are suicidal talk about ending their lives. And this can be uh, quite directly, you know, by saying, you know, I'd be better off dead or I, you know, have no reason to live. Or it could be more indirectly, um, you know, talking about feeling trapped or overwhelmed or um, like they're, you're a burden to others. And, but there are, um, there's, there's things that people talk about that and, and talk about suicide and distress that can indicate um, that they may be thinking about suicide. The other um, uh, grouping is behavior and um, behaviors that are um, related to and more imminent suicide risk is could be um, things like an increased use of alcohol or drugs. So if your coworker is, um, you know, you, you're witnessing that they're maybe abusing substances or, you know, coming into work really late um, or, you know, leaving really early, uh, missing meetings. Uh, if you notice that they, you know, are are coming into work under the influence, that can certainly be a behavioral warning sign for suicide. Um, but it, it could also be, um, you know, recklessness. So kind of more reckless behavior, um, acting out, sort of agitation. Um, and so sometimes this, in a, in the in the context of a workplace, this could come across as sort of HR issues or, um, you know, having, uh, you know, issues with with coworkers, um, missing meetings, not getting the work done. Um, Or uh, this could also um, look like more sort of isolation, um, withdrawing from the work, especially for someone that is, um, you know, maybe is, is more kind of purposeful in their work and really dedicated to their job and now is sort of withdrawing and um, isolating from coworkers, not really participating in, um, you know, activities with, with coworkers, maybe your, you know, Zoom happy hours or things like that after um, work hours, and you're just noticing ch- a, a real change in a person's behavior. 
And then mood, um, which is really, um, you know, can be about um, feeling down or feeling depressed, um, feeling angry too. A lot of times folks that are, you know, feeling hopeless and, um, and overwhelmed can exhibit um, a more kind of agitated mood and maybe sort of more angry or irritable than normal. But essentially, um, you know, not any one of these things is is necessarily going to indicate um, imminent risk for suicide. It's really this in combination and and really thinking about you know, major changes in in the way a person is is talking and behaving and acting, and, and really they serve as just an opportunity to reach out. Um, and so, the more that we can kind of understand suicide warning signs, the the more we can um, you know make ourselves available to to folks that that we may be concerned going back to the 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 talk aspect of that specifically you know there there could be a lot of reasons why someone may be reluctant to to talk about these issues to you know to open up to to a coworker or or someone else what are some of those those barriers that exist that prevent people from talking about it and for asking for help if they may be struggling? Well, this is, you know, this has really um, kind of been the, the so foundational to my work and really what um, I think got me so interested in, um, in workplace culture and just really kind of understanding the reasons you know, a big part of, of kind of suicide prevention is getting people connected to help. And so, but how do we, you know, reach people and engage people who are, are not getting connected to care or don't want to get connected with care? And so, um, you know, I will say the far majority of, of people who are feeling distressed and, um, are, you know, struggling with a mental health condition or, um, you know, are thinking about suicide, the far majority do reach out for help. But there, there are those that do not. And how do, you know, what are those, those reasons? And it's, it's, it's interesting. So some of it has to do with the fact that, you know, you're feeling, down and depressed and hopeless and that itself makes you know doing kind of any normal day-to-day thing quite difficult and so reaching out for help is is not an easy thing and it's it can be even more difficult when you're you know feeling down and feeling hopeless so this sort of individual aspect, you know, individual reasons for not reaching out for help are certainly part of what prevents people from from reaching out. Also, just kind of your own sort of belief system, maybe a you know belief that um, you can handle your problems on your own, or um, that kind of speaks to maybe your perceived need. A lot of times, you know, when 
when um, you know folks are are really struggling, it's it's sometimes easy to think like, well, this is just how things are, you know. Especially now, thinking you know, well, I'm lucky to have a job, you know, just kind of get through it. Um, and so sometimes, just again, our kind of own individual, um, you know, the way we raised our 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 culture, the you know how we how we look to mental health and, and help seeking can prevent us from from reaching out for help. But then there are also um, like institutional barriers, right? So the culture of a workplace, if you, if the culture is one of, um, you know, of, of promoting health and well-being and resources, then, then people will have um, an easier time reaching out for help. But if the culture is about, um, you know, the sort of, you know, pull up your uh, bootstraps to get through it and, um, and really kind of just like grin and bear it. And that, you know, that reaching out for help is a sign of weakness. Um, if there are even, you know, sometimes policies that may um, prevent uh, folks from from thinking that you know reaching out for help could be done safely. Um, maybe you know there's there's policies in in place that um, you know that 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 make it seem like their job could be impacted or they could be overlooked for a promotion or um, um, something that would prevent them from furthering their career. Um, for, uh, you know, coming forward with a mental health condition, um, then, then that itself would be a, a reason for, um, for, not, for not reaching out for help. And then there's sort of the just practical and logistical um, part of this too, that um, a lot of times, you know, just the mental health services and employee kind of health and wellness benefits often get overlooked. And so even though they're available and folks have access to, you know, mental health care and employee assistance programs and other kind of work-life services, they're often not promoted uh, in the same way that um, you know, physical health benefits are promoted. And so a lot of times people just don't know that they have these, you know, services available to them. Um, they don't know they're confidential. They don't, you know, all the, of the things that I think would mitigate a lot of reasons why someone would, you know, would reach out for help are, um, are not kind of part of that health promotion, I should that's, say. That's a really good point. Now, with, with those barriers, be they, you know, administrative, practical, cultural, whatever the case might be, what are, what are some specific ways that people can break through those barriers, break through that stigma to, to kind of start and have those conversations to help those people who are struggling? Yeah, and this is really, um, this is such a critical part of suicide prevention and really integrating suicide prevention, you know, mental health and suicide prevention as part of workplace safety, as part of, you know, integrating it into the culture. And this um, often starts with um, leadership. 
leadership often sets the tone. And so when, um, you know, leadership is really kind of proactive about um, the, the kind of uh, culture that's focused on sort of community, well-being, when um, they can you know, really kind of address job strain and any sort of toxic, you know, work environment um, issues or contributors, that really, um, that really helps in changing culture. But another piece to this is that communication piece that it's um, about kind of promoting what services are available to kind of increase awareness and understanding um, of of mental health services, of employee health and wellness services, so that when, so that's, and that's really what we call kind of an upstream approach, so that, meaning that we're, you know, kind of promoting protective factors and, and promoting um, a culture of, you know, well-being and, and respect and help-seeking so that when someone is in distress or um, is thinking about suicide, they're not having to kind of navigate um, through this, this help-seeking process that they have been made aware very early on of what's available to them. And that's a really um, key piece to this. Another piece to this is the kind of what I I like to think of as the power of peers, that when, um, you know, that this this sort of peer culture, that when someone in the workplace, a a coworker, you know, talks about that they had a really, um, you know, that they were, they were feeling um, depressed, or they were struggling with anxiety, or it can even be, you know, just that they were feeling really stressed or um, feeling burned out by their work. And they reached out to their employee assistant assistance program, or they reached out to a counselor through their mental health benefit and talks about and shares that experience that they then become a, a resource for others, but it also helps to break through that that stigma and break down those barriers that then in turn really helps to build out this more sort of open and supportive culture. And that's really um, where I think, you know, storytelling and, you know, people with, we, we refer to um, people who are living with, you know, suicidal thoughts and behaviors as, as people with lived experience when they start talking about, you know, their own lived experience, or when um, suicide loss survivors, so folks that have lost a loved one or a family member, or a coworker to suicide, you know, talk openly about their experience and what was helpful to them. That's that kind of that's that that power of storytelling, but also that um, that kind of peer connection and peer support that again really helps to uh, create this more open and supportive culture. And when you have the resources that support that, um, you know, when you have mental health uh, education and um, suicide prevention education and 
mental health services, employee health and wellness benefits available, then those stories can get integrated into the kind of help seeking process. And so folks not only know where to go for help, but they also kind of identify, okay, that's a reason to reach out for help. Um, because they're really kind of learning about um, their own mental health, their you know suicide, what suicide risk may look like, and and how and why to get. That's help. a great point. I know in in workplace safety, we talk about the the power of storytelling, and I love your example about you know having someone who benefited from an employee assistance program or something like that being a positive example for their coworkers and their peers that you know this is a resource that's available and it's really helped me. That's just gonna you know build awareness and confidence in it that you know we have these resources available to you, and here's you know one of your coworkers talking about the positive impact that it made on their life. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, it, it kind of speaks back to those, um, you know, that that kind of group we're talking about that, um, you know, for again, for many people, if they're they're struggling or they're, um, you know, need some extra support, they, you know, will see the EAP number and, and just, you know, reach out and call it. But there are folks that that number exists, they know about it, but there's still that fear or concerns about confidentiality or just kind of not knowing what to expect that is going to prevent them from just, you know, picking up the phone and calling that number, reaching out for help. And so if they can hear from someone else about like what that process looked like and, and how it worked, that can really change the way that people reach out for help. Another piece here too is, you know, part of this is training, right? That, you know, if all managers and supervisors, you know, call the EAP and know exactly the steps that um, they, you know, it it takes to get connected with with someone or they, or even, um, you know, calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, you can say, you know, I'm not in crisis, I just want to call and get information um, in the event that I share this number with someone, you know, what can they expect? And so having that information so that when you are sharing the EAP number or you are sharing the lifeline number, you're not just sharing the number you're saying, and when you call EAP, they're going to ask you this, this, and this, you know, the information's not going to be reported back to the, um, you know, to me as your supervisor or to the organization in any way, it's completely confidential. You know, in the event that it's the the crisis line, it's you know when you call this number, a responder will pick up, and it's completely free and confidential and available twenty four seven. You know, th- these are the things that um, the more information we have, the better helpers, the better peers. Talking we can about be. Uh, EAPs, uh, those those can be a great resource. So, what are uh, some of the other tools and resources employers can utilize to help employees who maybe going through difficult times. Sure. So yeah, EAP is is one of, you know, many resources that can be made available and, and promoted to colleagues and, and staff, employees in the workplace. But yeah, there are so many different uh, resources and approaches available. I think um, one of the things when we talk about 
um, workplace culture and um, and and really kind of supporting suicide prevention and integrating it as part of you know workplace safety, it can start really early on. So in that recruitment process, you know, during onboarding and and transitioning people into work, making sure that they're being educated about their their benefits and their you know the EAP, their health benefits, all of it that. Um, there's, you know, as part of um, any type of like education or training that suicide prevention and um, mental health awareness can be part of training. So there's some great um, certification trainings out there. There's a mental health first aid. There's safe talk or assist. Those are our suicide prevention trainings. AFSP has a, um, an educational uh, training called Talk Saves Lives. So those are ways to um, just kind of build out uh, what we call, you know, mental health or suicide prevention literacy so that, um, you know, either all staff or managers and supervisors are getting trained in how to talk about mental health and suicide prevention you know, safely and effectively. Uh, there are also um, workplaces that build out kind of more standard peer programs and um, and kind of build out peer support networks. That can be a really great way to um, again kind of build out that that culture of of support for help seeking and um, and really kind of supporting. Uh, employees supporting employees. And that can also um, extend beyond, you know, suicide prevention. That can just be sort of overall, um, you know, at at AFSP, we call it a buddy system. You know, you have a a buddy that you can turn to when, um, you know, you are frustrated by your, you know, your, the email account that's down that day or things like that, all the way up to, um, you know, I've, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about reaching out to EAP, you know, have you ever done that before? What does that look like? So, um, buddy systems can be really, um, informal or, um, you know, like, like I'm talking about or, or much more formal in a kind of peer support network that, um, peers get trained, but that's also, um, great. We also recommend, you know, screening programs. So screening intervention, it's a great way to um, kind of intervene or identify people who may be in distress, you know, way before it becomes a crisis, right? So um, depression screening days or, um, um, you know, just kind of general, um, if you're doing, a, you know, a physical screening every year, your kind of annual checkup, um, including a checkup from the neck up, right? The, the depression screening as part of the um, annual health screening is another, um, another you know, resource or, um, or tool that I think can be really helpful to building out all different aspects of, of um, mental health and, and suicide prevention 
uh, as part of the workplace. I wonder if we could uh, talk uh, a little more about the the mental health screening. And I love that checkup from the neck up. That's great. Is that an HR person interviewing employees, asking them questions about their mental well being? I'm curious, like how that how that process works. Sure. So it depends. Um, some uh, workplaces will kind of work with different organizations that provide screening. So typically they'll keep it outside of HR um, and kind of outside of the workplace just because it could be a barrier from someone, you know, answering the, the questions, you know, openly and honestly. But a lot of times um, if for workplaces that um you know, kind of promote an annual physical for their employees. Another way would be just to promote um, a mental health screening. You know, you're getting your annual physical this year and, you know, also ask your doctor about um, doing a depression screening. Um, So sometimes it's a little more informal. Another example would be um, when... Uh, like flu season, right? So sometimes, um, like right now, a lot of workplaces are promoting flu shots. Some are even, you know, bringing in um, nurses to provide flu shots for employees. Um, But another, you know, thing to do would be to have like a depression screening day. So you could, um, there's a a screening for mental health offers um, free screening, online screenings for anyone to take them. And you can take the screening, you get your results, and then you're encouraged to, you know, use those results to initiate a conversation with your um, general, you know, practitioner, your provider, or, you know, reach out to a mental health professional if that, you know, is something you're interested in doing. So that's one kind of way to integrate that like mental health checkup with the physical health checkup and and kind of the more that you're kind of integrating mental and physical health because it's just health, right? Um, the better. And so uh, I think that's that's part of this too. Now, when it comes to um, the interactive screening program, so, so the one that um, we have at AFSP, that's what we call a selective or a more targeted screening program. And so that's a program that typically gets implemented by the employee assistance program. So it's something that they offer and use it as a way of screening employees. But then it's an online portal. So after the employee takes the screening questionnaire within 24 hours, they get a response to that questionnaire from their EAP, from a counselor within their EAP. It's more integrated in that way, but because every screening questionnaire is getting a, you know, a response from an EAP counselor, uh, at most workplaces, it's, they're selecting like all new employees or employees that are transitioning, you know, because it it can't really serve as universal screening unless it's a smaller workplace. I always recommend that when workplaces are going to implement screening, that they take a comprehensive approach. So offering a universal screening where, you know, everyone can get access to and screen. And then when you're incorporating screening with the actual, you know, integration or engagement into services that a more targeted approach could, could be beneficial to helping, you know, 
to using the screening as a way to engage people into care. You mentioned the the buddy system. And I was thinking about that it kind of in the context of when we talked about the, the signs, signs and symptoms and that can be more challenging now with so many people working remotely. You're not seeing people every day and maybe noticing some of those things. So you think a, a buddy system or something like that could be you know, useful in these times, whether it's a, an email or a Zoom call or something like that, just to kind of check in, whether it's your buddy or other coworkers, just to see how, how people are, are doing and, and dealing with, with everything that's going on. Absolutely. And actually, we um, implemented the buddy system in response to COVID. And it was for that reason that we became, um, so what you know, in the kind of context of COVID for, I mean, certainly there are, you know, so many folks who have lost their jobs or have limited work right now. But for folks that were primarily, you know, in the kind of physical workspace together and who are now remote, um, you're right, it makes, um, I mean, it certainly interrupts that kind of day-to-day connection and and sort of physical connection that we all had by being in the same place. Um, But it also makes it more difficult, right, to kind of just take, you know, have a sense of um, those kind of warning signs that we're talking about and um, which, you know, can sometimes develop over time. And so you're, you know, when you're seeing someone every day and you can notice you know, behavior changes or mood changes. But again, when when you're not seeing each other every day, that can be more difficult. And so having the buddy system is really, again, when it's kind of as, you know, informal, it's really just about, you know, having that one colleague even that, you know, is, you know, if you sent them an email, hey, do you want to have a, a Zoom call at the end of the day today? Or just sending an email to check in. And it really could even be someone like outside of your department. Some, you know, workplaces will do this, you know, within, inter, sort of within the department. Other times it'll be kind of cross department. It's also a great way to just kind of informally learn about, you know, what other folks are, are doing and working on. But having those check-ins are so important. And, um, and, and again, it doesn't have to be in any formal way, but um, we've found that this kind of buddy system works really well and um, particularly now. And, um, and, we've, and I think it's, what it also does is it actually enhances the um, sense of community connectedness I think almost more in some ways than when we were all, you know, when everyone was in person because we weren't making these concerted efforts to, um, you know, check in with each other necessarily. They were happening more organically, sure. But sometimes when we're really intentional about checking in or reaching out to other people, it actually can can enhance um, the sense of, of sort of social connection. The, the buddy system was that a, a voluntary program, or they just that you institute that uh, across your office, and people were allowed to just pick someone out to be their buddy. How did that work? Yeah. So when it's done more informally, it's really about sort of it was um, the way we set it out was just like you know, picking a buddy and um, even just, and, and 
some of it was just very natural. Like they were the person that they were maybe sitting next to in the office and had a relationship with already and was sort of already a buddy. Um, but a more um, kind of more formally is is important too. So having more of like a peer support program can be really good as well, where the um, employees are actually volunteering to be peers, to be um uh, a resource. Now we have um, we have that too. We at AFSP we call it care team. So these are folks that have you know either been rec- you know recommended by their supervisor and have you know um, volunteered to be part of the care team. This is a much smaller team of people, um, but it's really um, it's more kind of focused in that if you know we have a colleague that's going through a hard time or um, you know in 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 our line of work we are dealing with you know people who are going through their own kind of lived experience. We have this huge network of chapters across all 50 states that have, you know, hundreds of thousands of volunteers that are, you know, going through their own lived experience or um, experiencing a recent loss, um, a suicide loss. And so these, the care team are really folks that um, can be reached out to by staff um, and, when you know someone in our in our community and in our network needs some additional support and to check in with one of our our um, care team members and so that's the kind of that's closer to a peer to peer uh, or a peer network and um, and then the kind of buddy system which is much more informal and um, and 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 is you know kind of um, set up you know, by employees kind of one-on-one and it is not necessarily, there's not a list of kind of buddy members or or anything like that, like there is with the care team. Okay. Is there uh, anything else uh, you'd like to add? Just to say thank you so much, Scott. This is really just wonderful to connect with you and um, to be able to to talk with you today about um, suicide prevention and really just the kind of changing landscape, I would say, of workplace culture and how I think the workplace is um, such a, a perfect setting for um, for suicide prevention. And so I'm just, again, really so grateful to you and and really appreciate you and, and your podcast and, and making this time for me. So well, thank I you. really appreciate you coming on and uh, the great work you and AFSP are doing in trying to address this in, in the workplace and elsewhere. And I hope you know, our, our listeners will take our conversation today and think about how, how they can work to, to better address this in, in their workplaces to start and have these conversations and to get their employees the, the resources they need. So thank you so much again. Great. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org and follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time.